everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Juliana Drauss, who is one of our honorees at next month's Vanguard Awards Gala. October 19th at the bank in Sacramento. Welcome to our show, Juliana. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Um, so tell us kind of, you know, what got you into being an attorney and what kinds of uh, cases you've worked on? Boy, that's a long story because I'm rather old. But, you know, I grew up in a working class family. But I was always interested in trials as a kid. I grew up in Mount Holly, New Jersey, and I would actually, in high school, go and sit through some trials. But I never thought I could be a lawyer. You know, back in the 60s, for girls going to college, you could be a social worker, nurse, or a teacher. So um, it wasn't until I got out in the work world and I was actually a social worker that um, I was encouraged actually by a judge to go into law because I was constantly in, getting cases in court for children who were in foster care who weren't being taken care of. And, um, you know, coming out of the 60s, I was always um, was really concerned about social justice. And I've been lucky enough to be able to do the kind of work that I've wanted to do. I started practicing criminal law in 1980, and um, I was in a fantastic building with some fantastic lawyers. We were all doing our own cases, and they were all criminal defense attorneys, and got a lot of support, and people, everybody was in the National Lawyers Guild, and it was still, in the 70s, we're still, people were still very politically active, and um, I decided what kind of practice I wanted to have. And I was lucky enough, um, I got married to a wonderful person, Joel Kirschenbaum, who worked on death penalty cases in his whole career. Another, you know, great work. Uh, but he, he worked for the state public defender where he had a decent salary and we had health insurance and all of that. So in my private practice, I was able to do the kind of work I wanted to do. So if cases came in, where, um, you know, most of these cases are not paying cases or they're appointed or low fee, but they're the, it's the best work. It's the most interesting work I think you can have as a lawyer. So I was in the lucky position to be able to take them. You know, I mean, it's not like we didn't like the money I would make when I would make it, but I had more shoes than anybody needed. So I was able to get into the work that I really wanted to do. 
And um, as I got into it, um, how I get my cases are largely through the prisons. Um, you know, being one of the lawyers on Geronimo Pratt and um, that's, you know, other cases, other people in prison would contact me and say, I need your help too. And the cases that I thought had merit, I would, I was, I would take and ended up having a practice that I really enjoyed doing. Well, you mentioned Geronimo Pratt. So um curious, uh, you know, kind of tell us about uh, that case um, and, and your role in it. That was a fascinating case. And I think one of the things about that case is, and comes up in this work often, is that you get to work with other very good, interesting people, people that's really fun to work with and people who are really committed. And on Geronimo Pratt, the credit for that case, there are people who never got the credit that they should get. Bobby Bloom, for example, he was a lawyer in New York who came to, to California. I don't know if you know him or not. In New York, he did Black Panther cases. He did big cases in New York. He came to California. Um, he, he decided to move to California, and he took that case out of the basement because it was it was going nowhere at the time. And he got that going. And one of the most wonderful things that he did is he brought Jimmy McCloskey on. Do you know Jimmy McCloskey? He runs Centurion Ministries. It's oh, a fantastic yeah, yeah, yeah. out of out of uh, Princeton, New Jersey. Right. And Jimmy McCloskey, with his incredible credibility was able to get fantastic press in LA. And that got that case rolling and moving towards where it ended up um, freeing Geronimo Pratt. I wrote the petition and I was there writing for the motions and it was in the background um, doing a, a lot of the research and writing on that case. I did not present anything in court. I the person, the people who presented it in court were two fantastic lawyers with Stuart Hanlon and Johnny Cochran. I didn't realize that McCloskey had worked on uh, the Pratt case. Without Jimmy, who I absolutely, I have the most respect for, it it, it wouldn't have happened. I can say that without any, you know, doubt whatsoever. Uh, he He's an amazing person. I don't know if you've ever met him. I haven't met him. I've read his book, though. Well, and, and after that, Jimmy, um, when I would want to get Centurion Ministries involved, instead of Centurion Ministries coming in, he would support me in my work and send me some funds to get investigators and that sort of thing. Um, just a, an amazing, amazing person. So how did you get into working on wrongful conviction cases? Um, because it was the kind of work I wanted to do. You know, in doing criminal defense, there were some cases, quite frankly, I didn't want to do um, that um, I was not totally comfortable doing, you know, for example, child abuse and 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 rape type cases. But um, the thing about wrongful convictions is there's no ambiguity. You know, you're doing the right thing. Uh, I mean, when you believe somebody's innocent and in prison, you want to get them out, you know, and, and, that, and, that, and, and so it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, we work 
with a lot of people that are incarcerated that shouldn't be in prison, um, both because they're innocent and sometimes because they've just been over-sentenced. Um, that's, yeah. No, that, you know, that that's really a good point. Because when people ask me how I can do criminal defense, you know, how can I, you know, represent people who might be guilty? You know, the there are too many innocent people in prison. But I think the bigger problem is actually the over the, the ridiculous sentences people get and the unfairness of the system. Um, it's to make sure that people are treated fairly and, and don't get more, you know, that we have, first of all, we have too many people in prison. There are people who are in prison who should be out just getting services. Um, and I think that that's a major issue that people need to understand. The people on the outside who ask you, how can you be a criminal defense attorney who don't understand what, what criminal defense attorneys do? Yeah, you know, there's a perception out there that criminal defense attorneys lie, which they're not allowed to do, uh, to get their uh, guilty defendants off. And, uh, you know, most of the time, uh, defense attorneys know, you know, to what extent their their client has has done what's accused. But what often happens is that what they're charged with is far broader than uh, what they actually did. And so most of the time, you're not trying to get an innocent person off. You're trying to get charges knocked down for somebody uh, who did something, but it's not quite as bad as what the DA is alleging. You want to get to the reality and to the fairness, and you want to discuss the fairness of, you know, that, right, that this person is overcharged. And one of the most wonderful things that have happened in recent years, and thank you to Kate Chatfield, is getting the new felony murder law passed. Uh, I mean, talk about overcharging and ridiculous sentences. I mean, for the getaway driver to get a life sentence when when his past record is so minimal is it was totally ridiculous and Kate Chatfield worked on that and and ended up getting that wonderful law passed i mean i i i am so amazed with what Kate was able to do with that yeah that you know has changed the life of so many people in fact Next Monday here in Yolo County, uh, we're going to have a retrial for a guy. He was convicted on natural and probable consequences. And so um, because of that law, in addition to some other things, his conviction got thrown out. And now they're going to have to retry him. And I don't see how they're going to convict him because he didn't do anything. But, you know, without that law he never would have gotten a second bite at the apple. No, that law has done a lot of good. You know, when you're talking about defense lawyers lying, I have often encountered dishonesty and lack of integrity on the part of the, of the prosecution. Right now, I have a case out of Sacramento that's totally outrageous. This young man was um, barely 18 when he was convicted of murder, and everyone knows he didn't do it. And when he was arrested, they took his phone. The DA put in a search warrant to get a search of the phone, saying that the phone will place him at the scene of the murder. Well, lo and behold, when the search warrant, when the when the uh, results came back, he was 13 miles away from the scene of the shooting, or the phone was. 
And the DA then, um, an attorney was appointed to represent him and didn't put in that evidence, which is just astounding to me, which is a basis for IAC on, on, on habeas. Um, and his reasons for doing that are just totally ridiculous. But anyway, what, what the, what the um, district attorney in Sacramento then tried to do was say, well, the phone wasn't his. Well, they said the phone was his. They took it from him. And the phone in the, the log of the phone calls are to like his mother, his brother, all of his people. And then they had to get away from that. And then they con concocted this ridiculous story that the murder didn't happen at one o'clock. Instead, it happened quite a bit earlier. And um, but the problem with that is that the 911 calls are all at one o'clock around one. And all of the evidence is, you know, people don't wait for half an hour to make a 911 call. Uh, and, and this man is still in prison. Um, and we, it's just totally frustrating to me that we are having such difficulty in getting the right thing done on that case. Now, is this the Nicole Carroll case? Oh, that's another one. That actually, though, uh, the good news is that she will be released on parole by the end of the year. Uh, I am so, so happy for that. But let me tell you about at that parole hearing, I have never encountered um, what I should say is the level of I, I'll still I'll just say it. The level of nastiness at that at that hearing from the one commissioner was just astounding to me. Um, asking her about her sex life and things that were totally, totally irrelevant. Um, but um, she is going to be paroled. They ended up doing the right thing. Um, I, I they had to. They had to. Um, the 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 person who planned the activity and the actual shooter were paroled because um, based on commutations of their sentence by Jerry Brown, for some reason, Nicole's sentence was not commuted, which I still don't understand, but she is going to be paroled. So there's good news on that case. What's the background on that one? I know we covered it like four or five years ago. You mean the the facts of, the, of how, how she got convicted? Yeah. Well, basically, she was dating um, someone, this young man, and um, she ended up moving out of Sacramento. She moved to L.A., and that relationship kind of sort of ended, and she was uh, had a friendship with another young man. And when she told the – she's uh, – um, one of her parents are Vietnamese – the new guy that she's with was Vietnamese. The first boyfriend was Caucasian, was white. And she told her boyfriend how upset she was with the ex-boyfriend and that he had made some racial slurs against her father. So um, the new boyfriend was offended and wanted to... He, he I think, you know, he, he really liked Nicole and he wanted to do something about it. So he got a group of his friends and they went out and confronted the guy. And unfortunately, one of the friends happened to have a gun. And it was a 
spontaneous shooting. I don't know how else to describe it. And she got convicted of first degree murder. Wow. So what other cases stand out to you? Oh, there are a few. Joel Alcox, he was in prison for 27 years again on a case where everyone knew that he didn't commit the crime. In fact, we, the, when, when we got the person who we knew committed the crime interviewed, his response was, that was a long time ago. Things are different now. He had since moved out of Santa Barbara. But the interesting thing on that case was when the case was over and we had finally gotten him out and um, he, he was found to be actually innocent and he received the $140 a day, um, which is doesn't nearly compensate 26 years. But um, I got a call from a U.S. attorney who um, congratulated me on winning that case. And um, he said, Julie, now you have to admit we have a system that works. And I sat there and I thought, how can we say that this, it's a system that works when for 20 years, for years, we had to fight in court to say that we had the right and we had to be there and they should hear this case. We had to deal with procedural issues and the real question as to whether or not he was innocent and should be released. It took us almost 20 years to have the real issue addressed. Now, how is that a system that works? You know, I, I, I it, it's just astounding to me. I mean, you know, were papers filed on time? Why did he wait so long before an attorney came on to help him? I mean, what does that matter when you have all these facts that he's innocent? You know, it, it makes it makes no logical sense. Um, you know, I it's just amazing to me. And you know, and when I tell when I have spoken to high school groups and some a few college groups. And when I tell them that actual innocence is not a ground for release on federal habeas, people are astounded. I mean, you can use actual innocence to get you through some procedural bars, but it's not real. It's not an issue. You have to find a constitutional violation to get into federal court. And being actually innocent, for some God knows reason, is not considered a constitutional violation. Um, I had a case out of... Um, out of um, Shasta County, where she was in prison for eight years, uh, her husband was killed. And again, it was clear that she was innocent. Um, and we finally, finally got her out. Um, that was a great case. And on that one, an allegation was ineffective assistance of counsel. And she, when she was up for retrial, the, the, um, court refused to appoint. I asked to be appointed to represent her on the, in the trial. They refused to appoint me and reappointed the attorney who had been ineffective, which again, um, it ended up, I mean, it ended up working out kind of sort of because it's one of these situations which happens a lot because there was a false confession on that case and false confession, you know, you have a hard time, especially in certain jurisdictions um, convincing a jury that that someone would confess to a murder they didn't commit. They made her a deal where she would be out of prison immediately and it would be over. 
And instead of taking the risk of a possible another conviction, she took that deal. Um, and that that that's enough. That's a way, you know, the the um, our system hates to admit that they make these mistakes, these horrible mistakes. They want to put out that it's a system that works, that we're ha having problems seeing how it really works that fairly. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like people are starting to understand that innocent people will um, confess to crimes that they don't commit either because they've been browbeaten by the interrogation process or in some cases they're they're confessing to stuff because they're trying to take a plea deal um, and, and they're afraid they're going to uh, go in for a lot longer. I do, but this brings up another ask. You know, all of these all of these things are complicated. There's never one answer to any question. You know what I mean? And here, it depends on what jurisdiction you're in. I mean, you can you're you're much lot more likely to have that understood in places like San Francisco and Alameda. But when you get into other counties and other states, it's much harder, which brings up another aspect of fairness. You know, a lot of what happens in our court isn't dependent on fairness as much as luck. You know, um, where you're charged, what judge you get, what DA is on the case, all of those various factors, what attorney is most most people who are are charged with murder end up having appointed attorneys, either the public defender or someone appointed. So who what attorney you end up with? I mean, there's so much luck involved rather than fairness, and that's kind of scary. That's scary. Well, I think uh, the stats are astounding. Like if you take a look at death penalty cases, first of all, you know um, executions are clustered in a few states. Uh, most states don't even execute people anymore. And then even in a state like California, you know, it's it varies so much county to county. Like, you know, San Francisco, they don't charge death penalty cases. Um, you know, we were in uh, Riverside uh, earlier this mm -hmm. year. They set up three death penalty trials. It's like, hey, guys, there's no death penalty in California. Uh, why are you setting up death penalty trials? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think if I haven't seen the statistics, but would be interesting to me to look at the 1437, you know, the new felony murder law statistics to see, to compare how those petitions are being handled county by county. That would be really, I would really like to see that. That would be well, really we interesting. We have some to me. early data on that um, because we had tracked um the cases back in 2019 and 2020 to see uh what was happening and so you have you know counties like san francisco had already cleared like half of their 1437 cases right. as of the end of 2020 and then you know the rural counties a lot of them only have one or two um but most of those were getting denied um almost summarily which we didn't think um we didn't think there was any legal basis uh for those denials um i haven't tracked it in 
two or three years, so I don't know where it is now, but but that's what we were seeing at least in 2020. Well, I think on the whole, I, I'm so happy I live in San Francisco. Um, I think when you look at not only in 1437 cases, but just generally how, I mean, it's not to say that we don't have problems here. I mean, there's certainly issues here to be sure. But I think that when you look at it overall, I mean, you know, kicking out Chase Aboudin was outrageous, totally outrageous. I mean, that, I mean, uh, I can't believe that that happened in San Francisco, but it did. And it's a sad thing. But, uh, but I think when you look overall as to what happens in San Francisco, there's a lot more acquittals. There's a lot more basic fairness, I think, than in a lot of places. And that's, partly because of the mindset of the people in San Francisco. Well, and there are a lot of resources in San Francisco. I mean, I I work a lot with the Public Defender's Office in San Francisco, and, and they have all sorts of resources at their disposal that uh, most offices could only dream of. That's thanks to Jeff Adachi. He did an amazing job when he was there. He really did in getting those resources. Um, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. The other thing is, you know, um, some my skepticism sometimes gets the best of me. And I used to call behavioral health court before I had any real experience there as clappy court. I'd go in there and see people clapping and I thought, how condescending, how ridiculous. But I had a, I had a client that, um, I, that I got in there and I was, really amazed to see, really happy to see um, that there are, are really services for people and people going to bat for her. She was transgender and the, the support that she had um, with the, the social workers who worked in the jail, the people who worked in that court, it was really, it was a, a very positive thing to see and it worked. It, it it worked for her and I saw it working for a lot of people. And I'm really happy to see that courts, not just in San Francisco, but otherwise are beginning to see courts recognizing that what people need are services rather than incarceration. Yeah, um, I, I think more and more, you know, there's a small core of people that are truly bad, truly dangerous. And when I say small, I mean tiny. Um, I think most people in the system, uh, you know, kind of fall into three categories. Uh, one of which is they just they they uh, they just need some education and some job training and to help them on their way. Uh, there's another group of people that, you know, um, they're su uh, suffering from substance use disorder um, and they need help uh, to get off that. And then there's a large group of people that are simply mentally ill and they don't need a jail cell. They need, they need medical treatment, not to be locked in a cage. And once we deal with, with those three categories, you know, the number of people that would be actually a threat to society and in prison is really small. Um, yeah. But we, we can't seem to get it through our head that it's actually a lot cheaper to treat people and to educate people than to lock them in a cage. 
And then there are the fundamental problems. You know, I, I have liked 99% of my clients as people perfectly, you know, perfectly, you know, and some wonder goes from, you know, ordinary people to wonderful people. But, you know, the, the it's no accident. There are reasons why the prisons are filled with people who are from low income and poor. And, and the, the racial disparity in the prisons, you know, and the, and the kind of racism that we deal with often, let me give you an example is like with in federal court with trigger lock cases. Um, I have represented so many young men who have had guns about gun cases. And the problem oftentimes is that the, are a, a large part of the time is that the system sees them all as the same. They don't individualize. And that's racism. I mean, I've had I've had cases where a, a very, like you said, a tiny group where a tiny number, I not I don't even want to say group, who are truly a danger to the community and have have doesn't have don't have a lot of conscience and all of that. And if they're put away for a while, it's okay. On the other hand, on the other end, I've seen a more where it was, instead of being black and poor, if they had been white and, and middle class, they wouldn't be in court. They'd be going to Cal instead of going to prison. And then all the people in the middle, you know, all the people in the middle who are just ordinary people with one kid saying to me, Julie, you know, when I told him, you know, we worked out a plea deal that he would never be able to have a gun. And he said to me, am I supposed to be the only person in my neighborhood without a gun, which is another issue. I mean, again, all of these issues are very, very, there's not one aspect to it. These are very complicated issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I just want to circle back because we're almost out of time. But, you know, is, is there a case that really stands out in your mind, you know, as you look back on your career? Well, you know, of course, I would have to say Geronimo, that that was such a great case to work on. Um, working with Stuart Hanlon was it was it, it was a great case to work on. Um and right now, what's really on my mind is the case I told you about in Sacramento with, with the phone evidence where he's still in prison. And I and it's hard for me to get that out of my mind um, until, you know, I, I desperately want the right thing to happen. He's a very, um, he's such a decent, good person and he should not be in prison. And everybody knows that he's innocent. And those those are the cases that stay with me. The cases where, where I can't get the right thing done is, is it, are the cases that, that, that stick with me and make it hard for me. Yeah. I mean, there's always those cases and, and, and you're just like, Oh, can't get this, can't do right by this person. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing a little bit. I, I've enjoyed having this discussion with you, getting to know you a little bit. Um, I, uh, since we've honored you, I realized that our paths have crossed a few times over the years. Uh, 
but I don't think I've ever actually met you in person. Actually, I was at the dinner where you honored Nancy Skinner, who oh. was somebody who really needed to be, was was great to be honored. Yeah. And I, oh. yeah. Okay. I stand corrected. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. This has been Everyday well, thank Injustice. Thank you for having me. And we're going to be honoring Juliana Drouse uh, in three weeks, three weeks from today in Sacramento at the bank. Uh, you can come on our website and purchase tickets. Uh, you've been listening to Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.